Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Layla Saad. Layla is the sixth guest in our special series called Women on Top, which is all made possible by our friends at Banana Republic. The most interesting businesses are born out of curiosity. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978 by two California creatives with adventurous spirits. Last fall, we partnered with a team at Banana Republic to celebrate curiosity by talking with women who are redefining what it means to be powerful and brave. And we're very excited to be back for a second series. I hope you love listening to these conversations as much as I love having them. And I know you'll be deeply inspired by these women. So please keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To see our favorites from their spring collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Layla Saad is a global activist speaker and the author of the New York Times best-selling Me and White Supremacy, which I read and loved. I also struggled through it at times, which we'll talk more about later. Today, Layla challenges us to open up to more honest and difficult conversations around race, which requires doing some critical self-examination. Although the white people of today didn't personally create white supremacy, by ignoring the impact it has had on our culture, we are unconsciously upholding it. So we have work to do. Acknowledging our part in racism and white supremacy is not easy. In fact, Layla assures us it can be messy, painful, and deeply uncomfortable, but it's still only a drop in the water of what it feels like to experience racism. White supremacy is not something that you choose necessarily, you know, that you are intentionally doing to try and harm, but that it, whether you realize it or not, it has impacted the way you think, the way you see yourself, and the way you see the world. And unless you examine that, you're going to do harm. I'll let Leila Saad take it from here. Thank you for all of this work that benefits all of us. And I, I love this in the beginning of the book, which when you, you say, you will become intimidated when you realize how this work will necessitate seismic change in your life. You will feel unrewarded because there will be nobody rushing to thank you for doing this work. But if you are a person who believes in love, justice, integrity, and equity for all people, then you know that this work is non-negotiable. Yeah. And I 
love this on so many levels, but particularly the idea of the lack of reward. Because yeah. I think, you know, and that's a huge part of the book, and I want to get into all of that and white saviorism and white centering. Yeah. But it's true. Like, for me, there was sort of this, like, oh, right. Right. Like, what's the payoff? What There's am I no gold star. <laughs> right. And, uh. and I think... You know, this kind of work is self-reflective work, it's transformation work, and many of us are used to doing personal development, personal growth work, where at the end, there's a feel-good payoff yeah. at the end, and you don't necessarily feel that in the same way with this work. The payoff, though, is that you get to live out your values. You get to live where you're treating other people mm -hmm. like they are equal to you, and you get to help create a world where people get to be treated the same with their dignity and full humanity. Mm -hmm. But through the process itself, you're going to feel unrewarded. You're going to feel overwhelmed. You're going to feel intimidated. It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's just the nature of, of doing this kind of work. Yeah. One of the other myths, I think it's a myth. I'm curious about your your perspective on this that you circle throughout the book is when you're giving up privilege, right? And when you're white, you're inherently very privileged right. across the world. And I think it's interesting that you're a black Muslim woman who grew up in the UK mm -hmm. and now lives in Qatar mm -hmm. and you're still writing these books. Because yes. I think we tend to think that the, this is particularly American. That's right. But there's this idea that by giving up my privilege or creating equity, that there is a loss, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that as women in particular, we always operate from a this place we often operate from a place of scarcity, like we don't get enough. And you sort of address this in the chapter right. about white feminism. But I think that collectively we all need to bust that myth in general. Like there's no, there's no reason why all water doesn't lift all boats. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a shift, yeah. an essential shift, but why do you think that we all feel like by you being equal, I've given something Lost up. something. Lost something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to what you were saying at the very beginning, you know, white supremacy is not country-specific. Right. It's a global phenomenon. And when you, as a person who holds white privilege, leaves the United States, you don't get to leave your privilege at home here mm -hmm. and go on your holiday. You know, you take it with you and you will be treated as if you are superior to people of other races. And so that's important for people to understand first. And I think with the question where if you also hold other identities that experience marginalization or discrimination, it's it's kind of like you feel like, well, I'm the victim in this regard, so I don't have to take responsibility for these mm -hmm. other things. And what I want people to understand is we're so complex as human beings, and there's different systems of oppression affecting us and impacting us in different ways. In some regards and in some identities, we experience privilege, and in some we don't. So yes, I'm a black Muslim woman, and I experience marginalization and discrimination from those identities, mm -hmm. but I'm also straight. I'm also, you know, able-bodied, right. and in those areas, I hold privilege. And me acknowledging those things doesn't take away from the impact of the other identities. And so what I'm trying to get people to do is to hold all of it. It's all true, all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you doing the work to investigate, self-examine, and um, dismantle your privilege will not take away from the fact that you're also being impacted by, you know, patriarchy, sexism, etc. Right. And it's not about 
being taking sort of like a, a sense of like, well, that's where I get my sense of being who I am is where I experience marginalization. You know, sometimes we can hold on to that so much that because I'm a woman, mm-hmm. I experience sexism and patriarchy. And so if I were to look at the ways that I'm racist to people of color and women of color, then I can't also say that I'm impacted by patriarchy and sexism. Right. And it's not true. It's all true at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the idea of intersectionality, which is Kimberly Crenshaw, right? And then the way that we describe ourselves. I've been working on a book with a, a black man, cisgendered. And he describes himself like that because he has a family member who is LGBTQ. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. I would never describe myself as a white woman. You know, I would just describe myself as a woman, woman, a mother, a Montanan. But the way that, you know, I think that we're all collectively, and I know many have done this, you know, their eyes have been open about it far longer, but to this idea of all of these things are intersectional identities and we just take as white people we just take the primary one right for granted right so and that's so interesting because what you said about I would just identify myself as a woman and I think that's something that many people who have white privilege do it's being white is the norm and everything mm-hmm. else is is other exactly. um, but actually when you see yourself as as raceless basically I'm just a woman mm-hmm. and my race has nothing to do with with anything, what that means is you don't acknowledge that you benefit from white supremacy. Of course. And you don't acknowledge that you're the social construct of white and holding that white privilege means that other people are often harmed by your unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs. Totally. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting because as a black woman, and, and I've read this from many black women writers and black people and people of color are culture, our race is such an integral part to who we are. Mm -hmm. And so we always say it up front, because to know me, you have to know that I'm black. Mm -hmm. That makes who I me who I am. So when people say I'm colorblind, I don't see color. Mm -hmm. You're saying you don't see me. Exactly. Yeah. And it gets to the point of of ridiculousness to like that whole because it's not true and it's and then it's and you write about this in the book but it's inherently then creating race is shameful you know for me to say when when my son who's six talks about his best friend leo and he says he's black i'm like oh my god don't say that right what am i saying to him right you know and i talk about that right in the book because i remember growing up and seeing that and seeing mothers say things like don't say black and I, it would just confuse me because what did that mean then? Yeah. You know, it, to me, it was a descriptor. Right. It, it didn't have any meaning, but clearly it had meaning. Right. Um, and we weren't to say that. So. Yeah. And in the studies, too, that they've done with children where they've coached them on on a colorblind mm-hmm. point of view versus one that's let's recognize and acknowledge difference. Yeah. The results of those studies are startling in terms of how those kids navigate the world and yeah. what they perceive to be uh, injustice. The ones who go colorblind right. don't see things as problematic. No, and I think it does a great disservice to, to, to kids to, mm-hmm. to teach them that because it means that they don't have a nuanced and complex understanding of race, racial constructs, racism. And so they grow up into adults, many of whom are doing this work, who when we start talking about racism, 
have a reaction of white fragility. Yep. Right. This term coined by Robin D'Angelo, where she talks about a range of defensive moves is triggered. You get upset, you get angry, you feel like you're being attacked, you cry, all because you're being asked to have a more complex conversation around race that is more than just, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's an, it's so entrenched. I have a friend I don't I don't know if we're friends but anymore but he's running for political office uh-huh. as a Republican and he put out a video that I thought was uh race baiting xenophobic mm. not to mention his views as he's put I think he's putting these forward to win but regardless it, it's irrelevant to me right. and deeply misogynistic in that he's put he's out on a pro life platform everything about it is I don't think he's a friend anymore. He's not a friend. (laughs) Anyway, I wrote him what I thought was a a kind email expressing Mm -hmm. how concerning it was to see this out in the world. And his response was really interesting to me because he played the victim and that I had leveled the most serious charge by calling him xenophobic and racist and that it was like deeply wounding and unforgivable. And anyway, it was so interesting to me, one, that he had, he's okay with misogyny apparently, but that he had managed to do something really gross and, and, and flag this sort of behavior in the world. And yet when I called, I didn't actually call him racist. I said he was race baiting, yeah. but that he was so deeply wounded. I, and, and many people who hold yeah. white skin privilege feel that way, yeah. that being called a racist or if there's an, it's sort of a conversation alluding to the idea that you may be practicing racism, yeah. that's worse than actual racism. Yes. How dare you? How could you? Right. And that is a way that I see is white supremacy continuing to enforce itself because when you can't have the conversation, it shuts everything down and yeah. everything then stays the same. And and so many people see racism as, you know, racial slurs or just this very direct, very violent way of being racist. And everything that falls short of that isn't racism. Yep. And what I want people to understand in this book, which, you know, me and white supremacy, it's a, it's a heavy title. Mm-hmm. The words are those that people associate with the fringe people, the neo-Nazis, and not necessarily themselves, especially if they see themselves as being very liberal minded or just haven't really investigated what racism actually means. It's those people that need to have this conversation because unless they're willing to understand that white supremacy impacts and has conditioned all of us, yep. all of us in different ways. I was reading something online yesterday and, and it said white supremacy is not the shark, it's it's the water. It's the water. It's in the water. It's in the water. Yes. And so it's not personal, right? So when yeah. you sent that email, he felt like you were personally attacking him. It's actually not personal about him. It's about, well, it is about his behavior, mm-hmm. but white supremacy is not something that you choose necessarily, yeah. you know, that you are intentionally doing to try and harm, but that it, whether you realize it or not, it has impacted the way you think, the way you see yourself and the way you see the world. And unless you examine that, you're going to do harm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is, it's the water, it's in the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a country that was founded on a genocide yeah. that we still don't acknowledge. Right. We've never made appropriate and reparations. And enslavement, right. Yeah. Yes. Then we move into hundreds of years of enslavement, mm-hmm. then the new Jim Crow, mm-hmm. and now that mass incarceration. Right. And that didn't go away just because the laws changed. No. Because if it was just about changing the laws, that would be easy. That would be a real easy fix. But you change the laws, but you don't change what's in here. And what's in here. Mm -hmm. And that requires critical self-examination, accountability, and acceptance that I didn't create white supremacy. Nobody who is alive today created it. But many people benefit from it. And many people continue to uphold it, not consciously, but unconsciously because of the benefit that they receive from it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, doing the anti-racism work is uncomfortable. It also, you know, provokes fear. Again, I think going back to this idea of loss, loss and security, and am I going to have enough? And what's, you know, you see what's happening in our country right now. And it is, it is just the stoking of fear that is creating an environment where people are behaving like animals, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. of just like hate, division. Right. And so it takes a certain amount of will and bravery, obviously. Yeah. And a an an investigation of your emotion. Yeah. And like what is what is that? Why am I scared? It's yeah. not, you know We need courage right now. And we need people who are willing to turn within and see how am I how am I a part of the problem? It's easy to blame politics and mm-hmm. politicians and that machine and say, well, if only I had power, then I could do something. What I'm trying to do through through this work is empower people to understand you are doing something. You yeah. are, you are actually actually upholding it, and you actually have the power to to tear it apart as well. Just within yourself first, which is huge mm-hmm. for somebody who who sees themselves as I couldn't possibly ever be racist and starts doing the work and begins to understand, oh, it's it's in me. Mm-hmm. And so it's not personal. I didn't choose it, but it's in me and I have to unlearn it. And they begin to change the way they live their life. And they have this ripple effect of everyone around them, their families, communities, yeah. friends. It's huge, right? But we're living in a time where people are willing to understand something's going on and I want to do the work. And I think that's why the book has done so well, Yeah, that people are tired and they want to do the work, even though this work needed to be done a very long time ago. It's not new, Yeah, but people, more people who hold white privilege are willing. I think we're at a point where it's been all it, been surfaced. It's surfaced and now it's impacting you. Yeah. And so, you know, but I think that there's this idea that if I lose privilege, then I will occupy a space and a a life experience that is similar to people of color. Mm. And that is very revealing because it means you you actually understand the conditions that they are living under. Right. And that your privilege protects you from. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, too. And I was talking to Glennon Doyle about anti-racism work, and she was saying... It's also, I think for women in particular, the same playbook apply. It, misogyny in our patriarchy is in the water too. Yes. And so somehow, sometimes mm. explaining that, like how deeply that's programmed yeah. is like a, a stepping stone for people to realize like, oh, I get it. Right. These are, this is. Yeah. This and, is I've had, yeah. and I've had that conversation with many, you know, uh, white women who, 
like I said, cling to that, but, but patriarchy oppresses us. And Mm -hmm. it's that analogy that, yes, that thing that happens to you, you also do it to us. Mm -hmm. And people have different reactions to it. Some can't believe it, but some recognize it and then realize how hard that is and don't know necessarily where to go from that space then. But I think that is often an analogy that people can then understand, oh, okay, that's what's done to me. And, you know, especially when white women will say to, you know, women of color like myself, don't talk about race, it divides us. Mm. We have a shared struggle because of our gender. So let's focus on that. And then we can deal with the other things, which has been the history of the feminist, mm-hmm. the mainstream feminist movement, especially in this country. Which was primarily built on the backs of black women. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely right. And so for me, I say, well, I can't div- chop parts of myself off. I'm a black woman, not a woman who is black. Yeah. And so a feminist movement that isn't anti-racist doesn't include me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when more white women can understand that, that if I'm he- really here for all women, mm-hmm. it means that I can't just talk about gender. I also have to talk about these other areas of intersections. We'll get back to Layla Saad in just a second. You've probably heard me mention that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who were looking for an adventure. Fun fact. Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company, and today the inspiration for their clothing is designed for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. This can be seen in Banana Republic's latest spring collection, a modern, versatile take on workwear. To see our favorites from the collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Working out, and more specifically doing yoga, helps me get out of my mind and into my body. I spend a lot of time in my mind, and yoga is a form of release for me. I love it. But the usual barriers can keep me from staying in a regular routine. Bulldog Yoga Online removes those hurdles and makes it very easy and fun to do yoga anytime, anyplace, with zero intimidation. Bulldog's online streaming classes are designed to work around your schedule. You can jump into a class from your bedroom, a hotel room, or wherever you find yourself. Classes range from 12 to 60 minutes, which is great if you promised yourself you'd squeeze in a workout and don't have much time. The classes are easy to follow along to and set to fun, upbeat playlists. You can choose from a range of classes and levels depending on what you're looking for. There are more basic classes geared toward beginners, aerobic-oriented classes that will give you a solid full-body workout, and even a meditation series. Bulldog Yoga believes in all the amazing benefits of yoga, increased strength, better flexibility, and improved mental focus, but their goal is to minimize feeling daunted by a certain kind of class atmosphere. So they're bringing the experience to your living room with some levity. To try Bulldog Yoga for yourself, head to bulldogonline.com. Use promo code GOOP60 to extend your free trial from 30 days to 60 days. That's bulldogonline.com and use code GOOP60. After your free trial, it's just $12.99 per month and you can cancel anytime. 
back to my chat with Layla Saad. So as I worked through your book, mm-hmm. which I hope everyone does in I advance so of listening to this, I was pretty familiar with the beginning and then... The basics. The basics. Uh-huh. I feel like I got the basics, uh-huh. but then it was, you know, and I, it, this is interesting when you think about Goop and being in the world of wellness, when yeah. you get to sort of culture, cultural appropriation yes, and yeah. how hard it is to define and two people might feel, you know, you're talking about yoga specifically. Right. As an example, yeah. right, of a person from that culture may feel that something is culturally appropriative and right. another person from that same culture feels that it's cultural appreciation. Yeah. So there's no checklist right. of what is and what isn't. But what I want people to understand is take a look, sort of zoom the camera back and look at the wider context of the relationship between the two cultures. Mm-hmm. Does that context include a history of genocide, colonization, Mm -hmm. enslavement, land theft, discrimination? What does it look like today? How are people who come from that culture treated today by people who look like you? Mm -hmm. And so with that sort of wider perspective, and also who benefits? Who's benefiting from from this cultural practice? Who's getting paid? Yeah. Who is seen as an expert in this space? And particularly in the yoga world, we know who is seen as the expert. It's Mm -hmm. usually a thin white woman Mm -hmm. who is seen as the expert. And so it's about, it's not about, you know, patting you on the, you know, slapping you on the hand and saying you did something wrong and you're bad and you shouldn't do that. But it's more about, can we develop a more critical way of understanding the context and then can your practice change so that it does less harm to people of color and it includes and uplifts mm-hmm. the people to whom that cultural aspect belongs. Right. Which I think, and, and, you know, I would add to that, there's a conversation about yoga. You also talk about Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Like we've definitely, and as we've grown up as a company, yeah. you know, there are a lot of saging, you know, right. that's a, that is... Theirs. Right, which I understand now that plant is really in danger of, yeah. of becoming extinct or something of that nature because it's just it's just commercialized so much. It's right. just used so much. Yeah. And it's found in spaces and places you wouldn't expect it to be. Right. I, I really want to caution people against or or help them become aware of am I using this because of the image it helps me cr- to create mm-hmm. for myself? Or do I have a deep connection to this? And that deep connection requires a deep understanding of that culture and the hardships that they have faced. Yeah. And it is, saging is an example of like, I mean, the the plant medicine that I think we're only now beginning to circle around and understand, like saging is antimicrobial, like it actually cleans the air. But then speaking of that, to go into the next thing, which I've certainly been very guilty of in my life, is white saviorism. And so how do you, if even mm-hmm. stitching it to cultural appropriation, how, how do we, and you sort of lay this out in the book, but I think so many white people, you know, you, you give an example of a woman who hears about the maternal crisis right. for black women in this country and right. decides she's going to set up a foundation. right instead of going to all the pre-existing foundations who run are by doing women that, of color. Right, right. Who are doing that work, who need the support, right. who could do with the help of finances, who could do with the help of their cause being uplifted and highlighted. But that woman in the book says, 
I'm going to set up a foundation. I will solve this. Mm -hmm. I will save black women. Yeah. And what's really important about all of this is examine yourself. Mm -hmm. Examine what are your intentions here, not your conscious conscious intentions, which is I want to help, but your unconscious intentions, which come, which which are necessarily seeded to the belief of white supremacy, and that belief is that white people are superior to other people of other races, and therefore you know better for those people what's best for them. Right. And you get to be the hero. And you get to be the hero, right? Mm -hmm. You get to save the day. And so you feel really good about yourself. You know, one of the the sayings that just grinds my teeth is, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. Mm. Those people are not voiceless. They have been systematically silenced, marginalized. You know, I run a podcast, as you know, called Good Ancestor Podcast. Mm -hmm. And one of the intentional things I do on that podcast is mainly highlight and interview people of color, especially black women, because I was so frustrated on being invited onto so many podcasts. And I would scroll through the list of guests and see people who look like me weren't really represented. Mm -hmm. When I know we exist, I know we do the work, I know we're doing incredible work in the face of racism and sexism. Right. So, you know, it's it's not that we're silenced, it's that we're not platformed. Yeah. It's that we're not given the opportunity, it's that we're not past the mic, it's that we're not believed that we can be the experts. Mm-hmm. And that is, it, is it, it's inherent when we're talking about white saviorism. It's about examining what do I actually believe about these people on a deep level? Mm-hmm. Do I believe that their blackness, their brownness means that I need to come in and save the day for them, yeah. which sounds gross, right? Because most people will say, I don't believe that. I don't right. know. That's what the colonizers did. And, you know, when they, but I don't believe that. No, you believe that because it was never examined. Mm-hmm. It was never actually removed from the consciousness. Laws were changed, but consciousness stayed the same. And yeah. so it just plays out in a different way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I was, was in college, I went to Kenya to mm-hmm. be a teacher and build Which a school. Which is where my father's from, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Where in Kenya? Yeah. Um, from Mombasa. Okay. Yeah. We, we were near, I don't even know, it, the, it was a village. It a had no name. Yeah. 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 Near Abu Kaya. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was an incredible experience for me, in part because I was like, what the fuck am I even doing here? Right, right. Like, this is not, I am not helping. Right. You know? like Who asked you to go there, right? Exactly. I was like, this is an education for me. Right. And I'm grateful. Uh, it was a powerful experience for right. me. And I think that we all had the same understanding. Right. This whole, like, I'm going to come in. And I was like, I can't. I'm going to do nothing for these kids. But that's so, I love that you use those words because I think many people have that. It's a powerful experience for me. Yep. And so the black people in that country, Kenyans, Africans, get to be away from many white people for them to work through Mm -hmm. whatever revelation they need to have. And then they get to go back home and continue life on. And, you know, when we're talking about trips to Africa or trips to, you know, Latin American countries, and this idea that I need to go help. Mm-hmm. You weren't necessarily called. Right. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. You're not, I have right. No what skills. experience do you yeah. have to go there? And also, oftentimes people go there without asking the local people there what's actually needed. And so go in with the programs that they feel they need. Mm-hmm. And even if they do, and this is really important for people to understand, because some people say, well, we do partner with the locals there. There is still a dynamic that exists between your two cultures where you are the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And so they may go along with certain things that you say because you are the dominant culture, Mm -hmm. 
right? You 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 just are, and they yeah. th- through the process of colonization have been also they've also internalized a sense of like non-dominance in relationship so that's always there it's really important to understand these things yeah no absolutely i mean reading your book i was like duh you know <laughs> Ugh. and i think that you brought up power and you write you know you're talking about how we're we you know we all have unconscious bias right yeah. we're all inclined towards prejudice right. one way or another yeah And you write, prejudice is wrong, but it is not the same as racism. Racism is the coupling of prejudice with power, where the dominant social group, which which in a white supremacist society is people with white privilege, is able to dominate over all other racial groups negatively affect them. Right. And I quote, and I talk about Ijeoma Oluo's work, and she mm-hmm. has a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. And she talks about this dominance, this mm-hmm. this relationship, this uh, hierarchical power structure that exists. It's always there. Mm-hmm. And people who hold white privilege need to be aware of it. And it, that's hard because people of color are not just people in Africa in another country. They might be your coworker, mm-hmm. your best friend, your family member. And it's still important to understand that dynamic will play out. Mm-hmm. It's not free. You can't. There's no space from which white supremacy doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so, the more a person who holds white privilege does their work, and are willing to, you know, say yes, I do. I, you know, I do have this power. I do have this ability to hurt you in a way that you cannot hurt mm-hmm. me. That's actually how you do less harm and how you become safer for people of color to be around. Right. And it takes the teeth out of, you know, assertions of reverse racism or, you know, affirmative action being, again, a completely toothless. And it's been proven. Affirmative action does not mean that people who have white privilege are now oppressed. Yeah, no. Right. Essentially, you don't have to do anything. It only applies to public or public government com- government agencies, right. essentially, or, or companies of a certain size. And it, all it means is that you have to consider all applicants. Right. But when it's often still cited, I'm sure you saw that NPR survey, and it was staggering how many white Americans believed that they'd lost opportunities oh, yeah. because yeah. of affirmative action, right. even though often they weren't hired a white person was hired. It was actually very rare. Right. And w- and the thing about affirmative action is it's a, and this is not me saying it's good or, ba- or bad, but what it is, what I understand it's attempting to do is to, is to create a, a balance mm-hmm. because people of color are just not treated equally. Mm-hmm. When all things are considered and you have two applicants who have the same experience the same age they're bringing the same thing to the table unconscious bias means that the white person will still have a leg up right and conscious things must be done to try and balance that thing out yeah i mean it's like this list that you print where you're you're just this list of racist stereotypes which i want to read because Mm -hmm. to say or to suggest that we don't for many of these immediately conjure some sort of Poor, lazy, less educated, less intelligent, exotic, spicy, spiritual, sexist, oppressed, terrorists, drug dealers, domineering, effeminate, aggressive, demure, alcoholics, overachieving, helpless, opportunists. Right. So just a list of qualities and and unconsciously, I'm sure we can all immediately stereotype and link it to some 
group. And what's frustrating for me about that, and I think for many black people, is that we're taught from a very young age, you know, your blackness will work against you. Mm -hmm. So you have to work twice as hard to make up for that fact, just to be treated equally. So when we're called opportunists, lazy, uneducated, and we're working twice as hard, yep. it just doesn't match up, you know, the, the hashtag of black excellence. We have to be excellent because right. our mediocrity is not treated the same as the mediocrity of somebody who has white skin privilege. And so it just, it's very frustrating to be leveled with a stereotype that in no way matches the reality of what's going on. Yeah. But I think for anyone who's listening, who's questioning, like, could I possibly, <laughs> I can't possibly be racist or, I mean, I think that's how deep this is. Yeah. And, and I think, and I, I'm, you know, the, the name of the person who said that it might be Robin D'Angelo, I'm not sure, but the question isn't, am I racist? It's how am I racist? Yeah. And I think it is Robin D'Angelo who says this. It's not, am I racist? I think when you can accept, I am racist because racism, white supremacy has conditioned and impacted me. And being racist is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Mm -hmm. Being impacted by racism is the worst thing that can happen to you. Mm -hmm. People die because of the impact of racism. Mm -hmm. So when we can take the fear out of accepting Maybe I am racist, and it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. It means that I've been conditioned by a system from birth. Mm -hmm. And it's not about am I, but how am I? And understanding how am I means I can then create change. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the examples of that, you know, stereotype in the book or in the challenge, a woman, a white woman who was doing the challenge on the day when we were looking at you and black woman, she said she was at a doctor's office. And when the doctor came in, she was surprised when the doctor came in and it was a black woman. Mm. She wasn't expecting a black woman. And she knew that thought was racist. And so immediately replaced it with something else that she knew was a better thought. Anybody can be a doctor, mm -hmm. you know, but the first thought is what I'm trying to get people to to, 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 own. Un, to own, right? Yeah. To, to uncover, to see, because it's that first thought that actually does harm. Mm -hmm. Most of us know it's wrong to, to have these beliefs, these thoughts, but when they come up and we don't examine them, own them, and then change them, but just try and slap on another thought instead, you continue to do harm. We'll get back to Layla Saad in just a second. Although I do like to hit up the Goop store in Brentwood every now and then, I find myself spending less and less time shopping for clothing in stores. And I know a lot of women who just flat out don't feel like they have the time or energy to shop for themselves. Latote is a fashion rental service that makes it easy and convenient to freshen up your wardrobe regularly for a flat monthly fee. Their mission is to make fashion accessible to every woman every day, whether you're the kind of person who likes to try out trends or the kind of person who goes weak at the knees when you think about a trip to the mall. With Latote, you still get to choose the clothes and accessories you want to wear. You browse styles on Latote's site, pick what you want to rent, and everything gets delivered right to your door. You can wear the pieces as long as you'd like, and when you're done, you just send them back in a prepaid envelope. Latote does the laundry for you so that you don't have to worry about that. If you love a piece enough to keep it, you get up to 50% off the retail price. To check it out, visit latote.com. Right now, Latote is offering 40% off your first two months. Just use code GOOP to get your discount today. That's L-E-T-O-T-E dot com. 
and use code GOOP. Back to my chat with Layla Saad. Are you hopeful? Like, do you, I mean, it's amazing that you're on the list, that this work seems to be, I don't know, maybe it's only, I'm in my own echo chamber, but it feels like it's gaining traction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's from day one when we did the Instagram challenge, you know, tens of thousands of people did that work. Like I said, 100,000 did have the workbook and now the this book, the hardcover is a New York Times bestseller and in its first week. That says something, mm-hmm. you know, that is, impor- is important. It's not an easy book. Mm-hmm. Um, and for it to do that well so quickly says something. At the same time, I'm also very re- realistic about how white supremacy will try to maintain itself. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to take not just buying a book, but doing the work. Yeah. And that's not in, it's not in my hands. And that's on the people who have privilege because only the people who have that privilege can dismantle this. Mm-hmm. Black people and people of color, indigenous people, we can't dismantle it. We don't benefit from it. Mm-hmm. We don't have the power to rip it apart. But those like yourself who have mm-hmm. white skin privilege, if you not just read the book and have an intellectual understanding of it, but then continue on with your life, mm-hmm. but actually do the work, that's when things can start to change. Yeah. And you say it's not an easy book and it's certainly not, but it's also not a hard book. It's like... Well, it's not it's, an attack. That's It's not the thing. an attack and it's, yeah. it is a tactical workbook that you graciously guide people through. So it's also not just sort of a slam down. It's right. like, I'm going to hold your hand right. and we're going to do this day by day yeah. and chunk it into work or chunk it into, you know, sections. Right. It's a curriculum and it's a process and it's a, it's a guidebook. And it's like I said, it's not an attack and it's not a condemnation. This isn't personal. Right. The aim is not to get white people to feel so you know, self-loathing, right, and ashamed, and that, and that, that will create equality, that doesn't create equality, that, Mm -hmm. that just creates stuckness. Yeah, the aim is bring this stuff up to the surface, own it, take accountability for it, change it. It's natural that feelings of guilt and shame and all of those feelings will come up, which I think are necessary. I really do. I think skipping over the work And trying to just get to the good feelings at the end is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. We have to walk through it. And any any sort of deep spiritual text that you ever read, always you have to go through the valley. Yeah. You have to go through the darkness to get to the other side. And yeah, and there's no tangible reward. And not in the sense that we've gotten used to. Yeah. In the world that we live in where it's instant reward for everything. There is no instant reward for this. But I tie this all back to this idea of being a good ancestor. People who live today, we are living ancestors. We are literally creating the world that will come after mm-hmm. we are gone. And we are also the recipients of the work that was done before us. Mm-hmm. And so we have a responsibility now. And this idea of it's not just for me, it's for the people who will come after. They deserve a better world, just like we deserved a better yeah. world. Yeah. And I think that the counter to this, a counter to any resistance of those feelings of loss you might disagree with this, but I, I think it's the millennial generation, not the millennial generation, then Gen Z. Essentially, like, the world is becoming multiracial. Yeah. It's, it's happening. It it's just happened, is, right. And soon, I think it's, like, in the next, gener- in the next decade or yeah. two decades, the world will be more multiracial than it is white. Right. And whites are 
we're going to become the minority. Right. And so there is a certain, I think it's a business imperative. It yeah. is, it's a moral imperative, clearly. Right. right. But there's it's, no, we're not, there's nothing to maintain here. Right. It's not, it's going away. Right. And it's so interesting you say that because I sort of visualize the map of the world and I'm like, well, the map of the world is majority people of color, Right, though. I think it's just U.S. Right, in the Sorry, U.S., US right? Yeah. But it's this idea that white people are the center of everything mm-hmm. and the majority of everything. And in the world, that's just not the case. And we are moving to a multiracial global society mm-hmm. and, and one here in the United States. And so that being said, it's not about if there are just enough numbers of people of color, then racism will go away. Mm-mm. You don't need to have a lot of numbers to exert power. We know that yeah, from politics, know. right? Yeah. That you don't have to be the majority in numbers to be able to dominate over the majority of people. And so it's it's not enough to just say, I'll just wait till this thing rides itself out. Mm-hmm. No, I don't have to do any work. No. Like, you have to do the work. Yeah, no, yeah. you have to do the work. But yeah. it's like, even if you don't do the work, the world is changing. The world is changing. And yes, yeah. I mean, almost every every genocide, every act of evil has been orchestrated by a single right. person right. who's managed to aggregate power around them. So yeah, it doesn't, it's not a one-to-one equation. Right. But it's like, if not now, then when? When, right. When. And I really appeal to and invite um, people into this conversation who don't, who just don't believe that people should be treated as if they're not equal. Mm -hmm. They may not know how to live that out, but they, in their values, want to see an equal society. Yeah. That's who I'm inviting into this conversation. There's a conversation in the book about tone policing and, you know, victimhood. And there is, I think, fear around having you know, a tremendous amount of fear around having these conversations. Yeah. And there's, it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to say the wrong thing. So, but how do, what's, it's, it's, I think it's unclear. And I, I look at other people's Instagram sometimes yeah. and I'm like, oh my God, like it's so intense and, yeah. and hard. What, like how much grace is there around it or is that, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like sometimes people just really step in it and then you lose them. But, well, I think, you know, what I do is what I invite you to do is flip it to the other side and think about the violence that people of color live under every Mm -hmm. single day, not just the violence of the possibility of being shot or incarcerated, but the everyday you know, microaggression that you weren't expecting when you showed up at work or at the school or in just hanging out with your friends, right? White privilege means comfort Mm -hmm. and safety. Mm -hmm. And stepping into this work means being willing to give that up. This work is messy and Mm -hmm. hard and painful and uncomfortable. And it's still only a drop in the water of what it feels like to experience racism. And so I invite people to, to call on their courage, mm-hmm. step out of the comfort and the safety of privilege, and, and, and come do this work. And it's going to look different for different people. I have a certain approach that I do this work with. It's inherent in my personality, and that's what comes out, right? That doesn't mean that this is the only way to do this work. Mm-hmm. In fact, lean into the people who make you feel uncomfortable, you know, for some people, they're like, oh, Layla, I like her tone. I like the way she approaches this. She, you know, I, I, I only want to learn from her. Mm-hmm. No, go, go learn from the people who make you uncomfortable too. Because <laughs> they'll teach you some things. They'll hold yeah. up a big mirror yeah. for you to see, 
oh, this is how my anti-blackness plays out because I'm okay with certain types of black women, but not others. Mm. And, you know, doing this work requires breaking down that fragility and becoming more resilient and becoming actually more open mm -hmm. to hearing different voices. It's necessary. It's ugly and it's, you know, it's uncomfortable and the ugliness isn't the ugliness of hearing those voices. It's the facing of, yeah. the facing of, oh, this is what I actually feel. But the more you can face it, the, the more things change. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Layla Saad. For more on Layla, head to LaylaFSaad.com. That's L-A-Y-L-A-F-S-A-A-D. And make sure to pick up a copy of her book, Me and White Supremacy, and take the 28 days to do the work. The book is out now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>